Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today today, (laughs) we're going to do, it's our joint one, and we're going to do Valentine's Day tragedies. Yay! It's going to be a heavy one. Yeah, both of our cases are pretty, pretty bad. Um, So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. yeah, we love you. <laughs> anyway. I mean, if we were to celebrate it normally, I don't know that I, I think we would surprise everybody. I mean, my husband and I are planning on going to a Valentine's Day haunted house on Valentine's Day to celebrate it. So I'm planning on um, laying in the bathtub, watching Twilight and crying. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me somehow. <laughs> we don't we don't celebrate Wait, Valentine's Day. Did you do that last week? Oh, and this week. Oh, okay. It's a pattern. Was, Never mind. It was last night. Yeah, I suffer from seasonal depression. It's it's okay. a whole thing. So when Twilight can make you cry, you probably have sads. <laughs> yeah. I need to really like invest in one of those uh sad lights. But then I would just feel like the plants that I have in my kitchen that are under their own sad light. Oh, <laughs> Sounds so pitiful. Maybe I'm a plant. Maybe. <laughs> That's why I have so many. I don't know. Uh, but seasonal depression is like a, a real, real thing. Uh, and it, I guess this is payback for last year because last year's seasonal depression wasn't that bad, if you remember. Like, mm-hmm. I did pretty well. And this year, I'm just like a bummer 2000. Um, I think it's been especially hard for a lot of people that I've talked to um, this year, like, especially like right after the holidays, a lot of people I've talked to have been having a tough time this year, tougher than in the past, I think. Fair. Yeah, I think that's true, too. I've seen a lot of people like online who are like struggling with it, too. I think I just need to get a satellite and get my, my, what? What makes us happier when we're depressed than buying things, especially impulse buys? That's true. Well, I do have an impulse issue. That's a part of my ADHD. (laughs) Surely, surely not. (laughs) No, not me. I don't randomly do stuff. Anyways, what are we drinking, Samantha? Today is a pick your poison. Um... I am actually drinking, I, my husband and I went on an adventure this past weekend and visited his family down in um, the Slocum, Alabama area, Mariana, Florida area. And we went to this new distillery that opened up. It's sort of new, but it's called Keel and Company Distilling Inc. And they had some really good stuff. Like I was seriously surprised. But my favorite by far was their chocolate moonshine, and it's Jamaican Me Crazy Coffee Moonshine, which is hilarious, and it tastes amazing. So it's literally just that with just a little bit of coconut milk and ice. That's it. Oh, wow. really, really dangerous because it tastes like dark chocolate almost, and it's just like perfect. You... I had two of these last night and I was, I was good. So I'm, um, I'm just having the one <laughs> and I'll try not to drink it until after I'm done with my story. That's why I'm going first. Oh, okay. What about you? Uh, I'm just sticking with a truly, I was 
So I was planning on making like that um, latte drink. Oh, that would have been interesting. Uh, Because I was kind of feeling like I kind of wanted like a coffee themed drink, but I have enough that I know when you come into town, we can each have two. So I'm like, I'm like not trying to like make another one until you get into town. So I'm sticking with a truly, uh, tried and true, truly. Montana can see, but you can't, but I'll post a picture. Actually, I'm going to do it today. Um, So it'll be before this episode airs. I'm going to do it tonight, though. But I put it in my happy cup that I got from one of my friends that is a kitty cat. Uh, So this this is my happy cup. Oh, yeah, it's cute. It's really cute. Oh, and uh, speaking of things that we said we were going to do, shout out to, I think it's (laughs) Jenna or Gina. Is it Jenna? G-N-A? Jenna, I think it's, anyways, hey Jenna, uh, shout out to her, she, I was editing the podcast last week, and I got an email on the Reaper Gals email, and it just, it said some other stuff, but then it said at the bottom uh, that she found a baton in a $5 <laughs> bin, and I was like, the fuck is this nonsense? <laughs> what I want to know is, did it actually scan when she went to the register? Were they like, oh, you found it in a $5 bin? Okay. And then they just charged her $5? Like somebody maybe just dropped it in the bin? That's a good question. I'll have to ask her. Or if you're listening to this, which I'm sure you probably are, email us and let us know. <laughs> uh, I want to know. <laughs> Anyways, so if anybody was wondering uh, if we respond to our emails, uh, if it's Thursday night, because I procrastinate, that's when I edit the podcast. Uh, if you email me then, I'm likely to email you right back. Yeah, this is true. And yeah. she might even take a picture of it and send it to me late Thursday night saying, check this out. <laughs> She's not going to forward the email or say, check out the email. She's just going to take a picture on Snap and send it to me. Yeah. Well, that's so much easier. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm lazy. I'm not lazy. <laughs> it, work. it works. Uh, I forgot to turn my light on. I can't there see you very well. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That was a bit of a difference. Now you can see me better. I can see you. All right, Samantha. So you're going to kick us off this week. Um, uh, tell us a story of love. Uh, unfortunately, it is not a story of love. Um Mine actually has limited information. It is an unsolved case, and we all know how much I love those, but it is a rather recent case. It's actually only been, as of this year, it'll be three years ago. So it was February 14th, 2020, and it is the unsolved Valentine's Day murder of Shamitha Cotite, I think is how they pronounced it. Um. She was a beautiful, loving, family-oriented young woman, born December 7, 1978. She was 41 years old when she was murdered on Valentine's Day in 2020 in Hoover, Alabama. I know. According to the reports, Shamitha had been running errands during the day and had returned home to her apartment. Her sister, Shanika Cotit, I think it's... That's how they pronounced it in the news. So if it's wrong, I apologize, but that's how the reporter pronounced it. Reported that she had just left the Piggly Wiggly in Bluff Park, not far from her home. She was seen at 6.53 in the store, uh, 6.53 p.m., sorry, in the store, talking with the security guard and another employee. As she was retrieving items from the back seat of her parked car, which was parked in the parking lot of the park at Wellington and Wakefield Apartments, 
She was shot in the back of the head four times. Some reported hearing the shots and screeching tires, as well as seeing a dark-colored four-door vehicle speeding away. Shamitha's daughter, Cassidy, who was a senior at Hoover High School at the time, found her mother next to her car. She described the scene in several articles, and this quote was from People.com. Quote, I heard the last three shots because I think there were five, Cassidy explained. I was sitting there waiting on it to stop. I heard the tires go off and that's it. I'm thinking, okay, somebody got shot and I'm nosy, so I'm just going to go look. The teen peeked through the blinds and noticed her mother's car. She didn't see her mother inside the vehicle. My first instinct was to go look again, double check, because maybe she's in the breezeway and maybe she's running from the gunshots, Cassidy said. I saw her car door open, but I didn't see her. I still didn't see her. At this point, I'm worried because why didn't she come in the house? The 17-year-old went outside and noticed her mom unresponsive on the ground. I checked her pulse because I'm trained for CPR, Cassidy said, but there was no pulse. By that time, the neighbors came out and I was screaming because it was so unreal to me that my mama was just lying there. There was no reason for somebody to do something like this to somebody so loving and so God-fearing. It just hurt me so bad I can't explain it. So this 17-year-old girl was the first one to find her mother. Well, and it sounds, I mean, we have limited information at this point. I'm going based off of what you have already said, but this seems targeted. Yeah, I'll get there. But yeah, that's what they believe too. Five shots only in her direction outside of her house. Yeah. In the parking lot. Yeah. Right when she exits the car. I mean, she was getting things out of the car, so she hadn't even gotten her belongings out yet. So, like, somebody followed her, knew. Or was waiting. Or was waiting, yeah. Oh, her poor daughter. Oh, my God, 17. 17. Jesus Christ. Police and firefighters arrived at the scene shortly before 7 p.m. Now, remember, she was seen at Piggly Wiggly at 6.53 when she left. Um, Was it 6.53? Is that what I said? Yeah, so that's only seven minutes would be at seven and fire police and firefighters were there. So that's really fast. Somebody called and they immediately got there. How close from the Piggly Wiggly is she? She must be really close. I don't know. Um, yeah. But, I mean, their time has to be accurate. And I think the six fifty three was actually, uh, I think that was camera footage. So the timing could be a little off depending on how accurate the camera is, but still that's not much time. Now, when we're talking about, and the listeners are not going to know what I'm talking about, but when we're talking about the Piggly Wiggly in Hoover, are you actually talking about the Piggly Wiggly? Bluff Park. Bluff Park? And it says it's not far from her home. Is that the one where we used to go when you lived in the apartment? No. No? Okay. No, no, no. I'm just trying to get it. This would be on the other side of town. If she's in Hoover, she lived in Hoover, so this would be on the other side of town. Okay. Right. 459 side I think but it, it I mean it says multiple times it was close by so it couldn't have been that far okay. and a lot of Piggly Wigglies are like especially in areas like that um, you're gonna see Piggly Wigglies pretty close to apartments yeah that's true so um, anyway so um, yeah so they arrived at the scene before 7 p.m. shortly before 7 p.m. Shamitha was found outside her car and pronounced dead on the scene at 7.05 p.m. It seems the suspect or suspects was waiting for Shamitha in the parking lot, but it is not known or really even suspected why. 
The police say they have identified a suspect, but they don't have enough evidence to move forward with charges or an arrest. They have asked and even offered a reward along with Crime Stoppers of Metro Alabama of $5,000 for information in the case to help bring information forward so they can hopefully move forward with an arrest. And that's been since they started offering that in July of that year, and it's still ongoing, so it's still available. Okay. Philip Stanton, her husband, and it says her husband, but I'll get into it. it he wasn't actually her husband at the time, has already been ruled out as a suspect. Philip and Shamitha were legally divorced at the time of the murder, but had remained close. The children continued to live in the family's apartment with their father after the shooting. So they were divorced, but they were obviously a big part of each other's lives because uh, they had kids together. Yeah, co-parenting yeah, in a good way. That's what it sounds like. Cassidy described her mother as, quote, the type of person who everybody loved. She was just the energy of everything. If there was a party and my mom walked in, the party started. She was the type of person who would help anybody, just anybody. She was just that type of person anyone could call on whenever you needed her and whatever the situation was. Wrong or right, she was going to talk to you and tell you what's wrong and what's right and what you could have done better to avoid the situation. She's me. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, she sounds like you. It's you talking to me on a daily basis. <laughs> Unfortunately, police have been unable to identify the killer or killers at this time, and they haven't actually made any kind of arrest. But like we said... They have somebody that they suspect, but they don't want to move forward with anything without sufficient information. Okay, well, that's the right thing to do. We don't want to do, we don't want to screw it up. From the reports I was able to read, they can't even determine a clear motive, though they believe she was most certainly targeted because of the nature of the attack. Hoover Police Captain Greg uh, Rector said in uh, the same people.com article I quoted earlier, Quote, this is a really tragic situation. Our victim had a good job, was very family oriented, and worked hard to provide for them. I mean, it's tragic anyway, in any case, but he's just saying, in general, like, there's no, what they're saying is there's, they can't even determine a motive of this. And that's a kind of a big piece whenever you're trying to solve a case. Cassie has said that she and her siblings try to focus on good times they had with her and not to let the tragedy of her death and the fact that it remains unsolved get the best of them. To hear this from a senior in high school and knowing that she has three siblings she's trying to take care of, one of which was nine years old at the time, is just, it's freaking heartbreaking. Unfortunately, this isn't the end to the story. Uh, according to AL.com, Quote and all this, uh, pretty much all this is going to be a quote because there's just so many different quotes in here. Authorities held on to Stanton's, which is Cotit's uh, Stanton's personal belongings initially for evidence. And when the family finally had the items returned, they realized her wedding ring was missing. That's when we started looking for it, Philip Stanton said. I was thinking this would be a good break in the case. I'm calling the detectives asking, can we check pawn shops? He hoped that maybe someone had sold the ring, which could lead to a possible suspect. She never stopped wearing the wedding ring, Stanton said. We were together since high school, 30-something years, and married for 18. We have three kids together. Stanton began to try to track down the ring. 
Stanton began to try to track down the ring. He learned that the ring and some other items had been in the possession of the Jefferson County Coroner's Office, which had returned some things like a nose ring and a bracelet, but not the wedding ring or her Apple Watch. Ultimately, Stanton reached out to the Jefferson County Coroner's Office. He learned the ring was sold at a county auction on December 28, 2020. Chief Deputy Coroner Bill Yates. Wait. It, it was sold by the county? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? I there. I told you it, it gets worse. <laughs> I was trying to warn you a little bit, but I mean, just no, add, adding no, more no, no. pain to it. My dog is losing her mind in the background. Uh, everybody, just excuse her. She has dementia. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't understand mom's reporting but, right now. No, she doesn't. I just. I, it's so what mm-hmm. I know you're about to get more into it, but this is so yeah. incredible. This is what I told you. I was like, I started researching it, and when I know, ran across this, I was like, oh, Montana's not going to be happy. Be Just worried, what but, the fuck? Like, oh, it gets worse. Oh. Okay, go on. So, Chief Deputy Coroner Bill Yates explained that, as in all coroner cases, her personal property was removed, inventoried, and secured in the property room. Quote, we attempted to contact the only next of kin we knew of, which was the victim's son, after autopsy to notify him of the personal property, and we weren't able to get him, unquote, Yates said. Because they were legally divorced, Stanton was not technically the next of kin. Authorities reached out to Philip Stanton Jr., who says he doesn't recall getting a phone call about his mother's property. Per state law, any unclaimed property over 30 days is turned over to the county treasurer and sold at county auction with the proceeds going to the county's general fund. Yates said, while the law says 30 days, what? What? So, wait, they got some of her belongings back? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they said, they specifically said they got a nose ring and a bracelet from the coroner. So, the things that cost the most, like an, an Apple Watch, which are not cheap, mm-hmm. and a wedding ring, which is not cheap, was not returned to them. Mm-hmm. But other stuff was. But they couldn't return it to them because... They couldn't get in contact with people, but they could get in contact with people enough to give back the stuff that didn't have a dollar value on it. I mean, I don't know how expensive the bracelet was, but yeah. That's bullshit. That's. Oh, the police. All right, go on. So, well, I mean, in this case, it could have been basically the coroner because it's their office that was holding yeah but the coroner is working in conjunction with the police department just saying it could have been one person in somewhere in the chain of custody that took it and the next person wouldn't know necessarily if they botched any paperwork or something like that there's no telling who or what or when i mean we'll just go with that if the state really that hard up for money that they have to steal a murder victim's items to sell has it been that long since you lived here? Of course they're in need of money. Yeah. There's a lot of things that go wrong in this. Well, we all know what my stance on county. law enforcement is, but anyway. It's not even just law enforcement. It's the state in general. Yeah. Well. They're not good managers of their money. No. Anyway, carry on. So, Yates said that while the law states 30 days, he, he thinks that fairly quick, so they held... He, he thinks that that was fairly quick, so they held Katit Stanton's property for 10 months after her death before selling it. At that point, it was among multiple items sold in an online county auction to the highest bidder. 
that same law makes provisions for family to come back later and be somewhat reimbursed for the proceeds, though not necessarily the market value for the item. At Stanton's request, the coroner's office started the reimbursement process. Stanton's plan was to use that money to buy back the ring so that it could be handed down to one of the one of their children. It's special, he said. Yates put Stanton in touch with the man who bought the lot that included the ring. This office tried to assist in brokering a deal between the two parties. I wrote a letter to the winning bidder, winning bidder explaining the nature of the death and the history of the item, the significance of it, and encouraged them to find a way so that the family could get this item back, Yates said. It appears that that was happening, and then I just found out that he's for some reason changed his mind. It's unfortunate, Yates said. I think Mr. Stanton wishes we had done more to get a hold of the family, and I can see that, and I will definitely keep in mind for the future. We tried, and we documented it. Stanton first reached out to the man, 85-year-old Harold Blaker of Kearney, Missouri, about a month ago. This, And I don't remember when this article was. I think this was two years ago. I told him the situation and he said, that's fine. And that he would hold it for me. Stanton said, I told him as soon as we got the money, we'd be sending it to him. Blaker told Stanton he'd paid, he had paid $1,700 for the lot of items. They agreed Stanton would pay him $2,000 for just the ring. Wait, seven. So wait, he no, talk about, he paid 1700 for the whole lot. So that was everything that was sold and bid on. What the f- fuck is wrong with people? yeah talk about taking advantage of somebody yeah what the fuck is this is the victim of a oh my oh my god what is what was his name again blaker william harold blaker harold blaker was the one that 85 years old yeah well fuck you harold yeah. i hope so oh it gets better hang on they so they agreed stanton would pay him two thousand dollars for just the ring Two weeks ago, he called Blaker again and said he was getting a $1,400 check from the county and he would use that money plus some of his own to buy back the ring. So here's where I step in. He got $1,400 check from the county. They only got $1,700 for the entire lot of items. So they didn't really make much money on this if that was their goal Mm -hmm. because they did have to reimburse. I guess they might have been counting on him not asking for that, but that's kind of a big thing to be missing for him to just not well, notice. the whole the whole deal yeah. is like he probably had a good case for a lawsuit on his hand. Oh yeah, for so sure. the state probably gave as much as they felt comfortable with at a higher rate, and he was willing to accept. Yeah, it. simply, and he was willing to accept it because he didn't want to lose the property of his ex wife. So I would sue the fucking state, like. Mm. Oh, okay. You made a face. Go on. So um, he said he was getting a $1,400 check from the county and he would use that money plus some of his own to buy back the ring. Stanton called Blaker again to tell him that the check was about to be processed and at that point learned that Blaker no longer wanted to sell the ring. He told me it was he wasn't going to do it, Stanton said. I asked him, sir, have you ever been married? And he said, yes, three times. Not surprising. Blaker spoke to AL.com about his purchase, which he said included multiple items such as sunglasses, glasses, telephones, some necklaces, and the ring. This fellow was waiting, wanting to buy ba- buy the ring back. Blaker said, "I bought it fair and square." Fuck you. He thinks I should. He thinks I should let him have, and have it, and him send me the money. Blaker said, "I don't trust anybody anymore. I've been screwed around on deals like this." Devil's advocate. 
this guy could be completely lying about the whole situation. That's fair. But also there's other ways you can broker this deal in 2020, 2021. There are a lot of options. Like you have eBay for goodness sakes. Like there's, there's other things you can do to make this work. If you're worried about not getting your money, that's not a valid excuse. Yeah, at all. Well, so Blaker said that they didn't initially agree on the price. Stanton called him again. He was preying on my sympathy, I guess, and said, well, that was my wife's wedding ring, Blaker said. And I said, well, I've changed my mind. I don't want to get rid of anything. I just don't feel comfortable putting a $2,000 ring in the mailbox and hoping somebody's going to send me some money. He said, that's just the way it is. Blaker said he bids on government auctions as a hobby, though it was his first time buying from Alabama. I've bought stuff from Ohio and from Kansas, he said. I've never had any problems. I paid for my stuff and they sent it to me. A lot of times he said he sells it junk jewelry, he said. He sells for the gold weight. I bought it and paid for it, Blaker said. I'm not obligated to him at all. I'm sorry that he got involved in a murder thing, but that's beyond my control. I'm just not going to do that. He didn't get involved in a murder thing. A murder thing showed up at his fucking front door. Like, it's not like he went out <laughs> looking for his ex-wife to be murdered. It it showed up at his doorstep. Like, what, what a fucking callous piece of shit. Like, what a most yeah. insensitive thing that you could possibly fucking say and do to a victim of a crime like this. I swear to fucking God, where does this guy live? <laughs> Don't tell me. I don't know the city and state. <laughs> um, he said, you can call and talk to me anytime you want, honey, Blaker told AL.com, but I'm still not going to sell that ring back to him. AL.com offered to drive Stanton's cashier check to Blaker to Missouri and return the ring to Stanton themselves. Blaker said that would be fine, but then changed his mind again the following day. What a piece of Stanton shit. is heartbroken. Yeah. He said, I don't understand why they want to keep the ring. He said, I'll just keep praying. It, like, and she... That ring could go to her children. Like, mm -hmm. and it's not even like they're asking for the watch bag. They just want the ring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I have people. Yeah. And AL.com got involved and even offered to drive up there. Yeah. Give him the check. Here it is in hand. So you don't have that excuse anymore. And he's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Next day. No, I don't want to do that anymore. So I think he's just. A POS, honestly. I think that's all it is. Yeah, he sounds like a super piece of shit. He wants the he wants the attention that he's getting. And he has no desire whatsoever to make this right for anybody. This makes me want to do a TikTok so. about it. <laughs> so I will end it on this note because unfortunately this is still an unsolved case. And unfortunately that ring has still not been returned as far as anything I could see. Um... I don't want you to attack this person, so I'm not going to repeat all of his information. You can find the AL.com if you want to send him some messages. He's 85, so I doubt I'll see him. Anyway, in an article on July of uh, in July of 2022 um, on a website, uh, WVTM13.com gives the summary of the unsolved part of this. So I just wanted to go back over that because if anybody does have information about this case, please if at all possible, I mean, obviously, if you want to get the reward, you can't do it anonymously, but you can report anonymously if you're not trying to get the reward. Um, but the Hoover Police Department remains determined and committed in our efforts to solve this murder, Hoover PD said in a news release Monday. So this was July of last year. 
It's our hope that reward money will encourage someone to make the phone call that will provide the information that we need. Below are some relevant pieces of information that are already known to detectives who are working on this case. We believe that there are individuals who know more and may have additional information that will be the final piece that leads to an arrest of the person responsible of this crime. If you know anything about this homicide, you're asked to call Crime Stoppers at 205-254-7777 or Hoover Police Department um, Detective Brad Fountain at 205-444-7562. And you can also submit an anonymous tip online at www.crimestoppersmetroal.com. And the notes are, the victim was ambushed from behind as she exited her car after returning home from running errands. It was not a random crime. This victim was specifically targeted by the suspect. The suspect was waiting in the parking lot for the, her to return home. The suspect is known to investigators at this time. Additional information and evidence is still needed in order for a formal formal arrest warrant to be issued. The person who provides that final piece of critical information that leads to the suspect's arrest will receive up to $5,000 in reward money. And we will include the information to, as far as reporting it in the show notes too. Good job. Um, all of that is terrible. I just, I just want justice for them. Like I want that ring back. It's not my ring. I want them to have that ring back. I'm just so like the callousness of people sometimes just surprises me so much. I I can't think on it too long because I'm like it just makes me discouraged in humanity. Yeah, you lose you lose faith in humanity. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah, and some asshole like that, he's probably some rich old white dude. Sitting up there, hoarding, bored. Yeah, hoarding and wanting disc so discord and like being dramatic and you know targeting. Not even targeting. He's he found an opportunity to harm somebody in a way that doesn't directly impact him, which is so fucked up. <sighs> well, good job. I just can't imagine being that person that does something like that. Like that's just so far beyond my comprehension. Yeah, I know. Same. Like, and if I were in that situation and I had bought like property off of somebody, if it had been a murder victim and their family came around and they were like, hey, I'm willing to give you money. I'd be like, bro, don't give me money. Just like, mm -hmm. here you go. No. And especially if you've got a, a reporter coming to you, obviously this is a real case. This is a real thing at the very least. Okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously real. I don't have to worry about them, quote unquote, trying to take advantage of me. Also, I know $2,000 is a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it really isn't. I mean, he paid $1,700 for the entire lot. I guarantee he could sell a lot of that stuff and make up a lot of his money. So yeah. it's just, uh, I don't know. What stingy, I, greedy people. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep something that I knew was like a family keepsake or something like that. Yeah. I mean, a wedding ring, like a wedding ring. That's something that you pass down in your family. And not to mention, they are almost never worth what you spend to get them in the first place. So it's all about the sentimental value in that piece of jewelry. So there's no reason whatsoever. He was not going to get $2,000 from a pawn shop. No, he wasn't. Absolutely not. So, I mean, he was just doing it to be just a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, I agree. Well, good job. Um, I'm up next. 
you are up next. So what are you going to tell us about? We actually have some similarities in our case. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, surprisingly, which we, we don't really, the only thing we coordinate on in like what we're doing is kind of like what the theme is, unless we're doing cryptids. If we're doing cryptids, we tell each other what we're doing specifically. Just in case, because there are some overlaps. Yeah. So today I'm going to tell you about the Valentine's Day murders, the murder of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. So I'm going to go over my resources real quick. Uh, There's a book called North Carolina Murder and Mayhem by Rick Jackson. I got some information from a CBS17.com article. Uh... Newsoforange.com, WRAL.com, OrangeCountyNC.gov, uh, WebSleuths.com, and APNews.com. So, and you'll start to see kind of like what similarities they are. There are, I mean, there it's a different demographic. It's obviously a different location, and it is a completely different decade. But there are similarities. In late February 1971, a surveyor was surveying some land around Cape's Landing on the Eno River. This is around, uh, this is in Durham, North Carolina. He didn't walk far into the woods when he spotted what looked like a mannequin's leg sticking out from the leaves beside a tree. However, he would soon discover it was not a mannequin, but the leg of a young woman. Her hands were tied behind her back with rope. She was slumped over and leaning against the body of a young man in the same position. But before we can get into that. Dude, you know, this is the second or third time I've heard something where it's like uh, a person thought it was a mannequin and went and looked. I ain't going to look. I'm going to assume it's a mannequin and mind my business and keep going because I could not handle it if it was an actual body. No, thank you. Yeah, I mentally, I don't think, if I ever saw, like, I've seen a couple of dead people in real life. Like, don't get me wrong. I've been to funerals, you know. Thank you for the clarification. But, like, if I, if I stumble across, like, a dead body in real life, I'm just going to look the, I'm not going to look the other way. I I don't have it in me. I'm going to freak out. It's probably. You're too curious, honestly. You'd have to know for sure. Yeah. I wouldn't. I am not curious by nature. Just ask my husband. I would be, oh, that looks like a mannequin. I am going to keep going. And then I would traumatize myself for the rest of my life. Like, (laughs) that's just who I am as a person. Um, My therapist would drop me. She'd be like, I can't deal with you anymore. It would be a whole thing. (laughs) Anyways, before we can get to who the bodies are, we need to rewind about two weeks. So we're doing this again. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember I wrote those notes together. <laughs> yeah. So that's right. Set them okay. up the same way. Uh, two weeks earlier on Valentine's Day, Patricia Mann uh, was a 20 year old nursing student attending Watts School of Nursing. Watts was throwing a Valentine's Day dance for the nurses uh, and the staff there. That evening, 19-year-old Jesse McBain arrived at Watts to escort Patricia to the dance. Jesse and Patricia had been dating for a while, and those who knew them could see the affection they both had for each other. 
That night, they danced and laughed and had a great night. After the dance, Patricia signed out at her dorm, telling them she would be back by 1 a.m. That was her curfew. Because, remember, this is the 70s and they had curfew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that, like, how old was she? Yeah, no, it was the, it was the 70s. Uh, the next morning, her friends noticed she had not come home the night before and had begun to worry. Patricia was known as a really good girl, quote unquote. I, quote, quote. Yeah, I freaking, she was a woman. <laughs> but uh, yeah, who followed the rules? So her friends did what any good friends would do, and they called the police, which were super concerned. No. It was yeah, the 70s. <laughs> yeah. It was the 70s, and police generally didn't begin to search for anyone unless they had been missing for at least 24 hours. But they said they would look into it. I literally I put in here. I would like to know the general. statistics of how often that actually was the case. Like, how often were false accusations or false reports made for people missing? How often did that really pan out that the people ended up just showing up the next day versus people that were actually missing? I would like to know that too. And we'll look it up when we're done because I'm curious. But it's just like, it just sounds like the police don't want to do their job. Oh, shocker. Oh, wait. This actually might be. Anyway, we're not going to get into it. This didn't deter her friends, however, and they went out to Lover's Lane to look for her. Once there, they discovered Jessie's car. Lover's Lane was not the first place her friends searched. It wasn't a regular place that Patricia and Jessie were known to frequent. The car was locked and undisturbed. So they had, like, gone out to multiple different places that they knew that Jessie and Patricia frequented. And the last place they looked, obviously, was Lover's Lane. There was no sign of Jesse or Patricia and no indication of any kind of struggle. This is when the missing persons case finally kicked off. <clears throat> finally. During the almost two weeks between, which this reminds me of the case that I did before. Uh, damn. Now I forgot a name. The hatchet wielder or the baton wielder. She ended up, oh, she was yeah. on a hike with her dog. Damn it. Now mm -hmm. this is bother me. Henson. It was Henson. Yeah. Uh, and they went, they found her car parked, you know, somewhere, but she was mm -hmm. nowhere to be found. Anyway, that just made me think of it. There's a lot of like overlap in that case, this case that I'm doing right now, and the case I did last week where they reported somebody missing and said, oh, no, you have to wait a certain amount of time, blah, blah, blah. So. And then, oh, our bad, she's dead. Yeah. It's just, uh, one might call it incompetence. During the almost two weeks between the couple going missing and the duh discovery of their bodies, citizens were freaking the fuck out. I bet. A direct quote, quote from the Orange County uh, NC.gov website says, Panicked citizens feared a killer was on the loose and would strike again. 
Friends organized search parties scouring the back roads of Durham and Orange counties for any sign of the couple. Reporters dubbed the case the Valentine's Day murders and pestered tight-lipped police for information. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about what we're about to get into. And I don't mean to laugh. It's just so frustrating. Hmm. Now we're going to fast forward back to February 25th when the couple was discovered in the woods, partially hidden under some leaves. Later that day, investigators identified the two bodies as Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. If I could talk. Their hands... I know. This is a constant struggle bus over here. Their hands had been tied with thick ropes behind their backs to a tree, and ropes were stretched tight and knotted around their necks. Although still tied to the tree, their upper bodies had slumped over so that they laid side by side next to each other in the woods. During the autopsy, it was discovered that the couple both had several strangle marks around their necks, as though the rope had been tightened, then loosened, and then tightened again. It was speculated that, speculated by investigators then and now that they were tortured to death. I was going to type out a, a massive, oh my God, why did I type this out? I was going to type out the massive fuck up so, that about the jurisdiction bullshit, but I found a perfect quote in orangecountync.gov. That will cover it for me. A half a dozen jurisdictions would investigate the case, including the Durham Police, the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and the State Bureau of Investigation. The initial inquiry identified numerous suspects, but a lack of cooperation amongst the various agencies kept investigators from putting together a comprehensive look at all the evidence. Missing pieces and massive egos stalled the case, and a few years later, active investigations had ground to a halt. Surprise! Hey, you know what we should do? You know what would really help solve a murder investigation? A murder in general? A dick measuring contest. Nobody's sharing any information. Nobody's, like, nobody's cooperating. They had multiple suspects. They were setting up interviews. They were doing um, lie detector tests. They had, and multiple agencies were doing this, but they weren't telling the other agencies. You know, this honestly feels like when I worked at the bank and nobody would talk to each other about what the other person was doing. So everybody was doing the same stuff and it was just wasting everybody's time. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds a lot like that. Yeah. Sharing is caring, people. Um, It also makes your job easier. Yeah. So this case actually ground to a halt and went unsolved for over 40 years. Until 2010. So it happened in 1971. And until 2010, nobody is really working the case. They say in articles that they opened it multiple times over the decades with no results or whatever, but okay. Or means they actually just opened the file. Yeah. They just like, it, closed it and put it back in the pile. This seems 
mm, this seems um, hard. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of a lot of work. I don't think we can go anywhere with this. They've they've done obviously done all they could. You, I don't want to work anyway. Orange County Major Tim Horn was asked to take measurements in a room at the old jail for a potential renovation project in 2010. He discovered dozens of cardboard boxes stacked in rows three to four feet high, covered in dust. One box sat by itself with its lid off. Tim moved to replace the lid, but he caught sight of the crime scene photos inside. The ones from Jesse and Jerisha's crime scene. Tim was intrigued and took the box back to his office and began to look through it. This sounds like me when I do a cleaning job. I, I start cleaning and then I find something interesting and then I just take the box with me and I just start going through it and then I forget what I was doing. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> it like my get done. <laughs> it sounds like my husband because like you and him, like I, I, I really do think I married you in male form and you married me in male form. So in some ways, in some ways. So like whenever he's cleaning something up or cleaning something out, I will, I will walk in where he's at and he's on the bed, just like looking at what it is. He's like going through a book and I'm like, Jesus Christ, can you just like, I'm going to throw all of this away or burn it. If you, <laughs> I don't have the patience for this right now. Uh, I'm not that bad, but yes, it does happen. I yes. do get distracted. So it's uh, uh, it's more common for me to be cleaning something and see something else needs to be done and stopping what I'm doing and doing that thing until I see something else that needs to be done. And it ends up being a whole day's worth. And then it takes me all day to get back to what I was originally doing to finish it. Yeah. But I do, I do what I can. At least you do finish it. I end up with half a basket of laundry folded on Monday morning and like dryer and washer still full of stuff and just like half done stuff all over the place (laughs) it's pretty bad laundry is one of those things that i have to i I can't just leave um paul forgets about it but me i i like to be able to know that the clothes are done mostly just because i hate wrinkles and the last thing i want to do is have to heaven forbid i iron but have to throw them back in the dryer to get the wrinkles out so i can wear it See, I don't so care. it's kind of like preventing eventual work. Um, so encouraging future laziness is, see, I guess, the way I look at it. I can't see it as future laziness because I just do it so often that I'm like, oh, it just means I have another 30 <laughs> minutes where it's going to have to tumble again that I have free. I just don't. I don't <laughs> think about <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the vicious cycle never ends. <laughs> Yeah, it ne- it's never ending. Until you run out of clothes or towels. <laughs> yes. So uh, he couldn't let the case go. A quote from Tim Horn. Um, quote, it had so many twists and turns that it was easy to get caught up in. Everyone who has had the opportunity to read the case file or be a part of the investigation has felt the same way. You couldn't put it down. It was like a book or a Hollywood screenplay. He shared his find with fellow Orange County detective Don Hunter, who had recently joined the force after several years with the Chapel Hill Police Department. After reading a few pages, Hunter was like was likewise hooked. For about six months, the duo worked in their free time and while off duty to piece the case file together. 
Tim asked Sheriff Pendergrass, who was a police officer in Chapel Hill at the time of the murders, if he could reopen the case. He reached out to other agencies involved in the initial investigation and requested their case files. Soon, he had detectives' notes from the SBI and the Durham Police Department. It took Tim and Don almost four years to compile the notes and evidence between multiple agencies. And when they did, a clear picture began to form around the potential suspects. These suspects had been identified shortly after the murders, two of which were already dead at this point, but one was still living in Orange County. A doctor, who also happened to work at the Watts Hospital where Patricia went to school, happened. Yeah. They haven't released the name of the doctor, and they won't. Detective Horn says this suspect is still a focus, a person of interest. The doctor has repeatedly refused to to cooperate with authorities. So we're about to make a a couple of left turns. Yeah, because this is all the way in 2010. We're, We're a little ways from there. Yeah. So a podcast, however, is the one that really brought the case back to the forefront for many. It's called The Long Dance. I haven't listened to it. Oh, this is the one that you mentioned. Yes. Before. I have a rule about not listening to other podcasts on cases before I cover it. Because I don't want their opinion or what they do to skew, you know, what I say or my potential opinions on it. But from what I understand, and I will go and listen to it after we do this recording, But from what I understand, Long Dance is an investigative podcast, so I don't think they give their opinion. I think it's just investigative Mm -hmm. journalism. Um, So the podcast worked with law enforcement to try and solve the case back in 2018. So we're eight years farther. Uh, It was Eric Pruitt and Drew Adamek, and I hope I say that right. The host worked with uh, Tim Horn on the case. Due to the work this group did, there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel in the form of DNA. They had preserved the ropes that were around the victims and sent them off for DNA testing. I read a whole bunch of stuff about how it was tested and what crap they used to test it. And I'm not going to bore you with that because it's literally a fucking snooze fest. But <laughs> I'll leave it up to a quote that I grabbed from, w, from the WRAL article. And it is, quote, We were able to glean some information, but there wasn't enough genetic material for them to make a comparison. Unquote. And this was from Tim Horn. Okay. So that's a no dice. They're waiting for some more evidence to come forward or for technology to advance more where the DNA is involved. Here's another left turn. During the podcast, the podcast brought up a very similar case that occurred in 1972 one year later. A young couple parked in a secluded area in the Duke Forest, not far from where 
um, Patricia and Jesse had been parked, reported that a long lone gunman attempted to kidnap them and force them into the trunk of his car. The male resisted and eventually the couple escaped, although not before the male victim was brutally pistol whipped by their attacker, suffering permanent nerve damage. Whoa. Yeah. But they couldn't find anything about the case on paper. There were no police reports, no media reports, just a bunch of rumors and dead ends. Because of all of the media surrounding the podcast, the the Lone Dance, um, and the reopening of the case, Tim Horn was contacted by a retired SBI agent who worked the specific case in Durham. After handing over the file number, Tim discovered just how similar the two cases were. This may be the other breaking point in the case, because both victims in the second attempt were both still alive to this day and are cooperating with law enforcement. And better still, there's a sketch of the suspect. Oh, wow. One that does favor one of the suspects in Jesse and Patricia's case. Hmm. But, as of now, (laughs) there have been no arrests made. Uh, there's, they're not naming the suspect, this doctor in any media. They're keeping this stuff pretty quiet. Quiet enough that they had a case that had no paper trail that was very similar to Patricia and Jesse's case. So, the end. Ugh. That's it. That's insanity. Yeah. Also, I, I listened to, um, so slight sidetrack. So I, I've been listening to this other podcast that um, my sister-in-law had suggested. And she actually said, cause it reminds her, they remind her a lot of us. Um, cause she listens to us every single episode that comes out. So <laughs> thank you, Jenny. Um, they covered Perchta. And I was like, oh, this should be interesting. And this was one of those cases where I didn't want to listen to another person do it. And the way they covered it was completely different from the way I covered it. But it gave different information and and relate it in a different way. So it made me kind of see it from a different point of view. So it was was really interesting because they didn't cover the whole positive side of her. So I do think that there's a lot of benefits there to not doing that because it can have a tendency to guide you in a particular direction. And it's better if you are looking at it from your viewpoint. And sometimes you can see things in a way that other people don't. Um, Or you may even have an opinion that hasn't been considered. So I think it's valuable to do that. And then by all means, listen to it afterwards. But I, I feel the same way. I, I don't listen beforehand unless I've just happened to listen to it before. Yeah. I mean, some sometimes I, you know, I've listened to so many podcasts at this point. Sometimes I do come across um, ones that I've heard, but I literally just don't remember them. Same. I've never heard of this case. Um, I do plan to go and listen to The Long Dance um, once we're done because it's an eight-part series they're about an hour each episode and i was just like but it, the pro the thing with those is is that they're doing investigative reporting mm-hmm. so they're doing interviews with people who are around back then they're doing interviews with police officers 
you know, things like that. So they're going to have a lot more material. And I didn't want like, I recently listened to um, an investigative podcast on a specific crime that I has always been in kind of like in my top five of I wish I knew what happened. And after listening to that, I was like, I'm pretty sure I know what happened. But at the same time, I'm like, but do I? Because what they're saying is very one sided Mm -hmm. in some ways. And you'll get that with some of these investigative like podcasts. And some of the books that I mean, we've talked about that books that we've gotten for different cases to cover it, it it can do the same thing. They can kind of seem from one particular side of the story. And if you actually think about it, you could see it yeah. in a different light. It can be wildly one way or the other. It's just crazy to me that both of our cases, they have a suspect. They just don't have evidence. They're they're doing what you should do, and that is not moving forward until you're sure it'll stick. Yeah, well, that's one time Alabama did something right. They really fucked something else up. Let's be honest here. Uh, uh, somebody did, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Regardless, I mean, every company and job that I have ever worked with and for has had those people that work under the same roof as me and are completely underhanded and unethical and will do whatever they want to in order to A, get the bonus or B, get the job done as easily and as lazily as possible. So one bad apple can ruin the entire bag. So it could have just been, that's why I say it could have been just one person in the department very easily. And there's no way of knowing who it was. It could have been. But if we continue on this topic about this, I'm going to get into a rant about capitalism. And we really don't need that on this podcast. Oh, one thing too, I heard today on the the other podcast, by the way, apparently DNA lasts very, a very long time on like rubber type material really because it's like porous so it it holds dna because they were they ran dna on a rubber band that had been around somebody's wrist or something and they were able to get dna off of it after years that's incredible and it was actually better than normal and that's what they were like oh in case you want to know it actually stays on on rubber material better than most others it's like oh well that's kind of weird yeah. It sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I guess it sort of makes sense. I'm sorry, listeners. I was not going to go into like the details of the machinery that they use to identify it or like do this DNA. <laughs> I was just like, I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting to me. And then I was like, this is so nerdy and stupid and boring. What are you yes. doing? I'm sure Paul's yell- going to be yelling at the, the podcast saying, why didn't you tell me more about it? And then he's going to immediately look it up. I'll send you the article, but they go into, oh into great detail. They used a machine that at the time uh, they only had like 40 of them in the world or in the States or something like that. And so they had recently gotten it. That's It was a whole like side quest in this fucking <laughs> dumpster fire of a case. <laughs> it was just like you get on those sometimes and it made i also thought it was really fascinating how he's like oh i'll talk to these other departments and get their case files and oh hey look at that they each have a different puzzle to the entire picture and i can actually sort of see what happened yeah tim novel idea tim horn he's he's a pretty from what i could tell he's a pretty rad dude he was he like talked to everybody he's like all right bro like give me your case file I'm going to compile it. I got my like Luigi sidekick over here. We're going to fucking get this shit done. Then all of a sudden, um, you know, 
um, some other fucking Mario Brothers characters pop in from the podcast and they're like, yo, we're trying to get stuff done. And what really, what actually happened was like the uh, Eric and, um, damn, I don't forget his other name. Sorry about it, other guy. Uh, Eric and Drew showed up and they were trying to cover like this uh, case on their podcast. And they went to try and talk to the family and the family was like, nah, bro, like get out of here. We don't want to really relive this. This is very traumatic. All of that stuff. Um, so they went to Tim Horn and Tim Horn was like, if the family doesn't want us to talk about it, like we're not going to talk about it. And then they came back around and they were like, all right, we'll work together. And so they started working together. They involved like the family. The family finally was like, yeah, we're going to do this all this stuff. So it was like this whole, like from what I could tell from articles, that's kind of what happened in this case. They were very persistent and they were like, yeah, we need to, we want to get to the bottom of this. Like we actually want to solve it. It's not for clout. It's not for, you know, listens or whatever. And as any of those like investigative podcasts uh, happen as the episodes are releasing, more and more people are hearing about it and listening to it. And they're like, you know what? I do know something and I'm feeling more comfortable because I'm hearing them on the podcast. Let me talk to them. And so more people were coming forward and be like, well, here's kind of what I know. Or here's this rumor. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was kind of an, an interesting like dynamic. Sad part is Tim Horn is retired now. At the end of or at the beginning of 2018, he had said um, he was going to wait until a specific time in mid 2018 to retire because he was up for retirement. He's like, I'm waiting until we get the DNA results back for this. We're thinking it's going to be around June. He was like, if anything, if it ends up, you know, going longer than that, I will wait until the end of the year. So December 31st before I retire. But at the end of December, he pieced out. Yeah. Because none of the DNA came back, which is sad. Well, and, you know, that's hard. That's tough. He's been looking at it since 2010. Like, that's eight years of his life that he's been trying to get somewhere with it. And at some point, you kind of, I've done everything I can. Maybe it's, you know, time to hand it over to a fresh set of eyes. They can use what I've been able to put together and, you know, add their own stuff to it. Maybe they'll be able to figure it out. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of like uh, detectives kind of get hung up. They get so in the weeds with like these cases that they don't want to hand it over. It's the same thing that you see. And I hate to make a comparison to like people in IT or like data science, but you get into these positions and they're like these gatekeepers or like recipes. They're gatekeepers of all of this knowledge. And they're like, I'm not going to share it because that's my worth. That's like, that's real unfortunate. Yeah. And you see that. You see well, that I think it's also things. a, it's also a lot of that is not necessarily that this is, this is what I bring to the table. It's also a fear that somebody else is going to do it better or improve on it. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, close the case. And I've been doing all this work. Look what I did. I'm the one that came up with all this stuff. And I don't get the credit at the end. But ultimately, 
that's that's that higher level of consciousness where we're able to share knowledge so things can get better yeah i know it's tough and i, I think that's the only way we're going to move forward like generate generationally like generations are getting better at doing that like i'd say millennials are like yeah you can have whatever i have if you can make it easier like fucking do it bro i don't even want to look at how. it <laughs> it's fucking it's when yours you now. It, I, that's the one thing for like with Paul. He'll he'll ask me something and he'll did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? here? Just fix it. I don't care what you do. Fix it and give it back to me. If you can come up with a better way, go for it. And he's like, Well, I don't know why you're so mad at me. I'm like, No, I'm not mad at you. I'm frustrated because I can't do it any better. I'm giving it to you. Please do better. And just yeah, give it to me when you're done. Like, that's fine. I don't care. And it is a different mentality. It's very different from what I've grown up in the job yeah in in my jobs and working with older people that's not a common mentality at all no it's not and I mean half of my job is like automating like stupid little tasks that people do every single day but it's like it's like a specific thing that they know and nobody else knows it and so like I develop automation AIs and robotics and things like robots and things like that to do this job for people so that they can take the information from that and make like a like a scientific evaluation of it instead of them spending their time doing this like menial task and you yeah you would be so surprised like how many people are just like no i don't want you to do that cuz they're they're afraid that's their worth mm-hmm. and that's not their worth well and a lot of things too previous generations saw the previous generation be eliminated from jobs because technology was developed that could do their jobs and they no longer could do that job because it was too expensive to pay somebody to do it when they could just automate it. So in their defense I can kind of see how that would be but the way you prevent that is learn the new thing and keep improving yourself. Yeah. Don't just stick with the one thing that you know how to do. Simply, yeah. You got to keep learning. You got to keep growing and things like that. And it so it was like a breath of fresh air to see this Tim Horn like come in, be an older gentleman and be like, you know what? I'm going to let this podcast come in here because I've seen what like investigative podcasting can do for a case. Um, we talk about like um, – Having a couple times. Yeah, it's happened a couple times in your own backyard. Um, I 100% believe that that podcast helped solve the case. Um, and then you've got the uh, serial podcast. The recent one. Yeah, yeah, that was the recent one, right? Uh-huh. Um, helped clear uh, someone of charges. He had been in prison for years. I never believed he did it, but that's my opinion. Uh charges have been clear for me i don't believe they had enough to to convict him yeah let me say that um and then there was wasn't the west memphis three didn't that get brought up too for Uh, that wasn't there some kind of investigative reporting i think that got done that kind of brought that to light too i don't think it was i don't think west memphis three i know that the murdoch murders was covered the south carolina murder uh, murder murders that's it that's actually in court right now we're just uh, rambling at this point anyways anyway uh it was it'll be interesting to see if anything comes of this um yeah either one of these 
uh, anytime soon. But well, I'll add them to our. You know anything? Alerts. You know anything? Say something, please. Report yeah, if you, even anonymous. If you know anything, anything about the, um, if you know anything about Jesse and Patricia's murders, you can contact the Orange County Police Department or Crime Stoppers, and we'll list that information in the show notes and on the social media posts. Speaking of social media, Samantha. Nice segue. I'm very look, nice. I'm just so fucking sweet. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> Where can our <laughs> listeners find us on our social medias, Instagram and Facebook? You can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast. What about email? You can email us at reapergals at reapertales.com. Be sure to email me on Thursday nights because I'm going to be editing that podcast. Procrastination <laughs> Station. She will currently be on the computer. <laughs> uh, Please like, rate, review, subscribe on the listening channel that you use. And bonus points if you do it on channels you don't use. Yeah. We appreciate it. And we love you for it. Yeah. Be sure to leave. If you're going to rate it, go ahead and just like leave a review. Say whatever you want. I don't care. Um, tell us we're pretty. But if you leave a like okay. an actual worded review more people find us than just just rating us so anyways we love you guys you're fantastic i'm great samantha's great like phenomenal um i'm looking forward to editing something weird at the end of this but of course (laughs) until next time love you mean it bye the reaper will come